You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody. This is Randy Bolander on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. So glad to be with you. It is a beautiful day in Kansas City. Trust it is wherever you are as well. I made a mistake of gargantuan proportions last night. I mean, this was a doozy. It was about 8 o'clock, and all of the kids were watching a movie, and Scout kind of lost interest, and so he and I wandered out to the patio. We've got new patio furniture, so it's kind of become an extension of the living room. So he and I are sitting out there, and I am kind of thumbing through my notes that I'm going to teach on Wednesday night, and he is talking, because that's what Scout does. Well, I sat there and I thought, boy, it'd be lovely to enjoy a cup of coffee out here. And I sat down and I drank a cup of coffee about 8 or 8.30 or 9 o'clock, 2 in the morning. I am wide awake and wired. I am so freaked out from the caffeine that I'm worrying about people that I don't even know. It was awful. And you know what's so funny in the middle of it? You never realize... I shouldn't have had that coffee. It's, it's always you're thinking, I'm struggling with anxiety. No, it's just you drank too much coffee. That wasn't very smart. Not going to do it again anytime real soon. This morning, I'm going to share a recording uh, from a teaching recently that I did to the group that is beginning to form and coalesce that's be uh, launching a church here in Kansas City, talking today about the idea of decision-making in times of crisis. Things have changed so much. And when one area of life changes, we have a tendency to doubt every area of life. And the truth is, some things don't change. Who you are does not change. And the best advice that you could heed would be to make your decisions out of identity rather than out of the circumstances that you find yourself in. We talk about it. This is from this last Sunday morning and out of the book of Esther. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, Our goal today is to determine to respond out of who we are rather than reacting out of what is happening to us. Rather than looking around, seeing everything that's happening and responding out of that, that we would respond out of who we are. And two keys to that our wholeheartedness and identity. We're going to talk about those this morning, the idea of wholeheartedness and identity. We have all done things at some point um, half-heartedly, okay? For instance, if you've ever played a board game with a child that went just way too long, you know what it's like to do something half-heartedly. Most people play shoots and ladders with a child with a different level of intensity than they play racquetball with their friend, okay? It's just... Uh, it's a different way of doing things. You can kind of do it while you're making your grocery list, or you can do it while you're supervising other kids. Now you might get beat, but it's only shoots and ladders. And so you don't lose any sleep over it. You do kind of half-heartedly. There are some things you can't do half-heartedly. You can't be married half-heartedly. Doesn't work well. You cannot uh, skydive half-heartedly. It takes some attention. Or uh, brain surgery is the kind of thing you want to give your full attention to if that's what you're doing. It is difficult to be half-hearted and make good decisions. And so there are things that we need to do wholeheartedly, particularly during uncertain times. And we live in times so uncertain that if we could visit 
recent years that we thought were uncertain times, we would go back and go, wow, this is stable. When you think about it, what was your craziest season of life a year ago? You'd go back to that in a heartbeat. That seemed easy compared to what kind of we're all walking through right now. I mean, as early as, uh, or as recent as 2019, just out of curiosity, I went back and looked at some of the news articles from 2019. You know what the fourth most common clicked on article in, on CNN for 2019 was? It related to the price of rotisserie chicken at Costco. That was the fourth most clicked on article last year. If you go to Yahoo and look at their top 10 stories of 2019, the number four most popular story was about people planning on um, doing a flash mob and rushing Area 51 to discover what the government was hiding from us about aliens. That was the, most, the, the fourth most important story. The third most important story of 2019, according to Yahoo, was the women's soccer team. What we would do to go back to rotisserie chicken and women's soccer, that would be like a dream for that to be what we were thinking about right now. But we live in uncertain times. 12 weeks ago, we met some of us. Now we've added to the number since then, but some of us met in person just for the second time. We had no idea within four days, social action, uh, interaction would change drastically, that most of our college students would come home and stay home. We had no idea that we would learn terms like N95 and social distancing that we never used before. And 12 weeks into that, it seems like the list of things that we don't know continues to grow faster than the things that we do know. We don't know what school will like, look like this fall. We get regular emails from the school saying, we don't know. We don't know what business will look like this fall. We don't know what healthcare will look like this fall. And there is a phenomenon among people that go through crisis, like we're all going through right now, that I call the domino effect. When one area of their life crumbles or one area of their life seems to be uncertain, they abandon other areas of their life because they assume that those areas aren't trustworthy either. Now, because right now there is so much that we don't know and so much that is up in the air, if we don't discipline our mind, we're going to fall in the trap of living like we're not certain of anything. It's why many people go into a crisis of faith. Something bad happens, some area of their life crumbles, and they don't know how to respond except out of that crisis. Now, clarity is a gift, and the Bible speaks with clarity on how to respond in times of crisis. And it is not to draw back from the Lord in suspicion, but to draw near to the Lord in trust. Psalm 55:22. Stay in, in uh, Esther if you found it. We'll be there most of the time. But Psalm 55:22 says, "Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved." Now, from personal experience, let me tell you: you cannot cast a burden on the Lord in a half-hearted manner. It always comes back. Wholeheartedness means you do something with your whole heart, your whole will, and your whole life. And even if we are not wholehearted, we recognize it in other people and other things when it comes to giving and receiving love, and it's different than doing something in a half-hearted manner. Now, most of you know, because you've seen the dog make appearances on Zoom, we got a dog in January. It's the first time we haven't had a dog in 30 years. So we, we got a dog, and in many ways, to our chagrin, it has kind of become Kelsey's dog. Uh, now, the kids love it. It loves the kids. But this dog passionately loves Kelsey. And every morning when Kelsey comes down the stairs, the dog responds as if she has been away for two tours of Afghanistan. 
I mean, it's like those videos you see. The dog goes ballistic. I don't know if the dog thinks every night that she's not going to make it and she's happy that she's alive, but the dog is just completely enthralled with Kelsey and goes through about a five-minute dance. It's the funniest thing. Now, that's one dog experience. But some of you may be familiar with the company called Boston Dynamics. They make uh, high-end robots, including one that they call Spot. And if you want to just be horrified, Google this thing, because it, it looks like the skeletal structure of a dog, and it moves and it walks like a dog. It weighs about 70 pounds. It can navigate uneven terrain. It, uh, it can run at a pretty high speed using eight cameras that give it 360-degree vision, and they are so lifelike that they are eerie to watch. If you saw an army of these coming down your street, you would scream and run. They're just the craziest looking things because they look real, but they're clearly not real. Now, as powerful as they are, I can't imagine, oh, they just started selling them now too. They're $75,000 if you want one. I can't imagine owning one of these is like having a dog. It does exactly what you want, but you don't really interact with it. It, it isn't alive, but it moves, but it doesn't really have a will and it doesn't experience sadness or joy. It looks, moves, and acts like a dog, but it's no more alive than your coffee table. None of you have a dynamic relationship with your coffee table. You don't go show strangers in the airport pictures of your coffee table. Have you seen my coffee table? You don't do that. It's different than you would for a pet or for a human being. Now, where is this going? God desires wholeheartedness from free-willed individuals, not just robots that he has automatic control over. He, he wants a relationship with people who are living, not that they're dead in the inside, but they are living because he wants to partner with them in order that he could reward them. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, 35, and 36, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. That idea of endurance and certainty and confidence all rolls together. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't throw that away. Even when things are, are difficult, even when you're in facing challenges, don't abandon your confidence or your certainty in the Lord. Just because one area crumbles, don't assume that every part of your life is crumbling. When the world is uncertain, our certain faith should guide our actions and our thoughts. And if anything, this time of uncertainty that we've all gone through has revealed that our actions and our thoughts may have been driven more by circumstance at times than by our faith. As our circumstances have changed, we find ourselves responding in ways that we, oh, wow, I, I, th I thought my faith was stronger than that. I thought I would stand a little more firmly than that. It is the time for us to adjust our thinking back to the way it should be. And that involves wholeheartedness. Now, with so much uncertain in our life, I am certain that we can't afford to live half-heartedly for the Lord. It is not a time to question our faith. It is a time to double down and press into it. And the last couple of weeks, I've been reading and rereading this story that I'm a, we're going to talk about this morning and uh, pondering getting ready to teach it. And so I'm super excited to dive into this. It is the story of a woman whose life has been turned on its ear and what was normal went completely away. And in that case, she was faced with an opportunity and she had to make a choice based on circumstance or based on her identity. She had to decide, am I wholeheartedly who God says I am or, I am, or am I gonna make what might seem like a logical decision based on circumstance? It's the same opportunity we have. We can let circumstance be our guide in this season and circumstances would probably guide us to hunker down and think primarily of ourselves. 
or we can let identity be our guide as children of God. And where this is going, friends, I'm telling you, where life is going for most of us in the next year or two, we can't afford to make our decisions based only on circumstance. We've got to make them based on the identity that God says we are. Generally, circumstances are a short-sighted guide. Even when the circumstances are besetting or long-term, they lead us to do things that don't take into account our heart or the long-term cost and benefit. When we focus on circumstance, we tend to act in light of what makes us feel better as opposed to what is the right thing to do to be true to who God has called us to be. This is the story in the book of Esther of a woman who says, circumstances fall to the wayside in light of my identity, and my identity leads me to wholeheartedness, and my response to the situation comes out of wholeheartedness to God. Now again, to the book of Esther, now I'm going to mess up you here, mess you up here for a minute. Uh, the book, books of the Old Testament are not in chronological order, okay? which leads us to read the story and sometimes get a little bit confused. If they were in chronological order, Genesis would be followed by Job, because Job happened long before the book of Exodus. Likewise, if they were in chronological order, Esther would not follow Ezra and Nehemiah, because the events of those books followed Esther in real life. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah would probably never have taken place had Esther not responded in the way she does in this story. It would not be the first time that a woman did all the heavy lifting and men came along and uh, ended up in front of them in line. Just for placing this in time, Daniel and the other intelligentsia have been carted off to Babylon, where Daniel served as a slave and a dream interpreter to the king of Babylon. And at some point, he prophesies to that king now imagine this, he's a slave and a dream interpreter, and he tells the king of Babylon, uh, you probably need to know that one day you're going to be overthrown by the Persians. This is not a happy, happy prophecy. But just like he prophesied, it happened. The story of Esther is that of a young Jewish woman who found herself living in Babylon under Persian rule. Again, generations before, the Babylonians carted the Jews off, so they're in Babylon, but then the Persians took over, and the Persians inherited them when they captured Babylon. To the victor go the spoils, and to the Persians go the Jews. Now, the Persians treated them a little differently than the Babylonians did. The Babylonians treated them as straight-up slaves. The, per uh, the Persians were a little bit different, uh, didn't treat them so much as slaves, but they were certainly second-class citizens. And they were always in danger of the whims of whoever was in charge. So we're, we're here at a time of a clash of cultures. The Jews have clashed with the Babylonians with their culture. And now with the Persians, they had differing values. They had differing histories. And they definitely saw themselves as having a very different future than the people who held them captive. How you see your future dictates how you live your day. You think it would be the other way around. You would think that you live your day and that develops your future. But the truth is, how you see the future determines how you live today. If you see yourself eventually as being a victim, you kind of live as a victim. If you see yourself as being a victor and you act like one, it's highly likely that one day victory will come. And the Jews were willing to surrender their freedom. They were willing to surrender their children in some cases. They're willing to surrender a lot of things, but the one thing they would not let go is that their future was different than those of the Persians. Now, we just got through graduation season, probably the strangest graduation season in our country since the 1940s. 
And uh, many of you undoubtedly went out and bought cards and mailed them to graduates. And some of those cards had things on them like Bible verses. And one of the verses that you find on graduation cards all the time, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, I don't know how to break this to Hallmark, but that was not originally for graduates. That was not written to the graduating class of 2020, although I believe it's all true for them. It was written by the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote it to these people who were living in Babylon. He was giving them instructions. He, uh, Jeremiah, for whatever reason, was not carted off with the others. He stayed back in Israel. But he wrote this letter to them, and they got the letter from the prophet, and it tells them, you've got a hope in a future. Your future is not the situation you're living in right now. Forget how it sounds to a college graduate. How does that sound to someone who's been in a captive in a foreign land for decades? It says, God has not forgotten me, and I cannot forget or abandon the fact that I have a different future. God's not just telling them this to encourage them. He's telling them this to differentiate them. He said, don't forget who you are. You're not Babylonians. You're not Persians. He went as far to say, you know, buy houses, marry, get land. You're going to have to raise your kids here. Be ready for that. He says all of that in that passage, but he says you have a different future than the people that you are around. God was appealing to their identity as a marker to their behavior, telling them, don't respond out of your circumstances. Respond out of who I say that you are and what I am calling you to be. And this is the setting that we find the story of Esther. Now, Esther's life started really in a point of difficulty. In addition to being a second-class citizen there in Babylon under the Persians, she was orphaned, relatively young, and raised by a relative. Now, as a young woman, she's brought into the courts of the king, and she finds herself an orphan girl with a second-rate status in the eyes of the public, suddenly becoming the queen of Persia. Now, how does that happen? The king's first wife publicly embarrasses him by refusing to be put on display, and so she gets banished. We don't really ever know what happens to her, but she falls out of favor, and she's sent off. So the king has this national beauty pageant, and Esther, the orphan Jewish girl, wins this very creepy version of The Bachelor, Bachelorette, as if the regular show is not creepy enough, she wins this very creepy version. And Esther 2, verse 17 says, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So she set, he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, this is one of those things that you go, I really wish I knew more about this. Like there's so many dynamics here that don't even get addressed. We don't know how Esther felt about this. At some point, she probably felt like, my life is out of control. I'm an orphan. I am held a captive in a foreign land. Now I've become the queen to a man who doesn't know who I really am. And he picked me, but I didn't necessarily pick him. Yet God continues to write Esther's story. And you might feel a little bit like Esther, that maybe not, you're not the queen of anything, or you're not the king of anything, but you find yourself in a place in life that you never imagined. And I think that's true of all of us at some level. You don't get to be 30 years old without at least once saying, well, I didn't see this coming. And then what you don't know is by the time you get to your 50s, it's one of your favorite sayings. You just say it all though, I didn't see this coming. I'm smarter than I was, and I'm still more surprised than I was. Lately, we've said it every week. 
even so, like Esther, God has never taken the, pay, the pen from the page of our life. Now, some passages that he wrote years ago make more sense now than they did. Some remain completely unresolved yet, but he's still writing. He's never taken the pen from the page of your life. And just like Esther the orphan girl, the unlikely queen of Persia, we all find ourselves in really strange places these days. And the same God who told her people, I have a hope and a future for you, tells us, I brought you to this point, And it's not just to be a static observer. The drama ratchets up really quickly for Esther here when her relative, Mordecai, who we believe to be her cousin, I know you hear the story all the time that it's her uncle, but uh, if you, you read the scripture, it's probably her cousin. Her, her cousin comes along, and he hears of news of palace intrigue. Now, centers of power have always been a place that attracts a lot of gossip, but this isn't just talk. Mordecai hears from a very reputable source that Haman, one of the power-hungry men who lurked in the king's court, is conspiring to kill all of the Jews based on their identity. Haman was a political operative and an advisor to the king who had received some renown and accomplishment from the king, but he was always looking for more. Just a side note, you will have more problems from people who aspire to power than you do from those who actually have the power. And in this case, that was true. He manipulates the king to do something he would have never done otherwise. And in Esther 3.8, he tells the king, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interests to tolerate them. Now, this was true in the strictest sense of the word, in the idea that they did not obey the king's laws, in that Mordecai recently had uh, refused to bow to Haman. So in that sense, that, that was a law, and Mordecai didn't do that. But their larger offense to the king and to Haman were that they kept their own identity, that they kept themselves separate from the others. It's been said of both uh, Jews and Christians that when they're under subjection, they're model citizens, they pay their taxes, and they contribute to society. But the one place of irritation to anyone who's ever tried to conquer them is they won't bow to any other god. And the real place of frustration for Haman and the king was that they dared to retain their identity and to consider their own God sovereign. They identified as children of God rather than as Persians. And living as a child of God is one thing that the enemy cannot bear you doing. So Mordecai, Esther's older relative, is devastated because he knows this means death for his people. And he may even have put two and two together that some of this hinges on him not bowing to Haman. Mordecai knows that Haman is threatening to kill all of the Jews, and it's linked somehow a little bit to his behavior. The only thing worse than realizing that there's a plan to wipe out all your people is to realize that you may have triggered that plan. And so he mourns at the city gate. He puts sackcloth and ashes, and he puts dirt on his head. And Esther's uh, people find him there. And knowing that he's a relative of the queen, they go and they report to her. You know, your, your relative, the one who raised you, is sitting out and clearly is mourning something. So Esther sends a worker to go and ask him what is going on. 
And in this moment, he tells Esther that devastation is coming to the Jewish people. And as the queen, she needs to go and she needs to request that her husband would change this edict and save her people. And in this moment, Esther tells him no. She says, no, no, no. This is politically dangerous for me to approach the king unsummoned. I mean, the queen before me was vanquished. And Esther probably thought, I can only play this queen card so many times. And I maybe better save it for something important. I mean, what if I reach out right now and this all turns to be a farce, then I have wasted the king's attention. Esther probably legitimately thought, I can do more good by remaining quiet as a queen than I can being a squeaky wheel. Now, she's afraid of losing her life, but in a sense, she's also afraid of losing her position. One of the dangers of being placed in prominence is that we grow fond of a prominent position and we seek to protect it rather than to leverage it for what God wants us to do. When people of faith are brought to authority, whether uh, you, it's you as a leader in your family, in the business place, in the community, when people of faith are brought to a place of authority, it is always for a purpose. If you lead anything, whether it's officially recognized or you just find yourself in a leadership role, you need to ask the Lord how that can be used to honor him. When the idea of losing the position stops you from doing the right thing, you're either operating in fear or you're not the right person for that position. Because God puts people in leadership roles, not for self-preservation, but to leverage for the kingdom. So word comes back to Mordecai, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think if I do that, that's probably going to cost me. And so no thank you. And in response... Mordecai plays the older relative card. He challenges the queen to respond wholeheartedly to what is right, not out of circumstance, but out of her identity. Because even though she's the queen of Persia, she's also still a daughter of Zion. And he sends her this message that has challenged people of faith for centuries. This may be the most epic speech ever. He tells her in Esther chapter 4, 13 and 14. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But if you and your fam father's family will, and you and your father's family will perish, but who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. These three sentences he gives her are packed with, with meaning. He tells her, essentially, God is preparing to move independently. This is an invitation for you. God doesn't need you to do what he is getting ready to do here. He's offering you an opportunity in if you'll say yes and operate out of your identity as a daughter of Zion. He also tells her that your own existence is in peril if you play it safe. He says, I know what you think safety is. You think safety is leaning back and not bothering the king and not leveraging your position right now, but actually that's dangerous. If you do what you think is playing it safe, it will cost you your life. The kingdom of God operates in a real upside down way. Often what we think of as playing it safe is the most dangerous thing we can do. It's comfortable, but it's comfortable right up until it kills you. Then the third thing he tells her is that Every step on your path has been prepared for this moment. Maybe he, when he says perhaps, 
you have come to this place for such a royal, a royal time as this. Like, that's almost sarcastic. He's like, come on. You have been brought to this position to do this right thing. You can't believe that God is half sovereign. He's either sovereign and put you where you are, or he has no control of anything at all. And if he's put you where you are, then how can you leverage your position for the fullness of the kingdom? If you're facing a challenge right now, if it's financial, maybe in your family, maybe you're battling in your own mind, this is an invitation to you. You are in greater peril if you don't step up to the challenge with wholeheartedness than if you draw back and do what you think is safe. God has been writing your story from the beginning, but your challenge has got to be whole, your, your response to the challenge has got to be wholehearted and out of identity of who he says you are, not of how circumstances are trying to mold you. So Esther faces this moment of decision and she's got options here. She can literally not respond. It's not like Mordecai can, or uh, yeah, Mordecai can even come into the palace and find her. She cannot go to the king. She can lie to Mordecai. There's a ton of things she can do. She can turn away and not suffer immediate loss, although ultimately she will lose. Or she can believe that God has been writing her story all along and that the pages that have been written already connect to the pages that God is getting ready to write. And so she's got to determine, who am I? And in that moment, Esther decides to respond as a daughter of Zion play the part of a Jewish girl who came to be the queen rather than a queen who's hiding her true identity as a Jewish girl. And she answers this way in Esther 4, 16. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And then one of the most epic lines in the Old Testament, if I perish, I perish. Now there's two pieces of, of, to her response here. One is her preparation to go before the king. And her preparation is they prepare with a group fast. Why does she need to fast? For the same reason we do. Fasting gives us authority in the real place where decisions are made. She wasn't fasting to get the attention of her king. She was fasting to get favor before the Lord. Let me encourage you, when you're going into difficult situations, understand that the real decision maker is not the other person in the meeting or the person you're in conflict with. The real decision maker is the Lord. There are times we have jettisoned our own efforts by being too concerned about currying favor with the other person and forgetting that the Lord really determines people's reactions. So they fast to gather favor before the Lord before they go into the king. And then her pledge, those epic words, if I perish, I perish. Other versions uh, say, if I die, I die. I'm willing to lay my life down based on who I am rather than preserve my earthly life based on what people think of me. Some years ago, Kelsey and I had studied this passage for, for months, and we had prayed through this, and we had sang it, and we had read it, and just had been on our mind, because God was calling us to step up in some areas um, that were new to us in the way of fasting and prayer and leading, and it was just a, a real pivotal season for us. And we kept reading Esther over and over, Lord, I want to respond like Esther. We end up at a place where they're making custom dog tags, you know, in these little booths somewhere, 
And uh, before I know it, Kelsey steps up to the booth and she orders two sets of dog tags and they each have our name on it. And the guy says, what do you want me to put underneath your name? And she looks at him and says, if I die, I die. And I remember these people's eyes just getting a little bit big, like what kind of a crazy person wants to put this on dog tags? But we each had dog tags that would say, if I die, I die. And more than once when I was facing decisions and feeling pressed on circumstances, I'd feel that cold steel against me. And I think, you know what? If I die, I die. Now, my life was never in danger, but there was that sense of whatever it takes. I really want to act out of who he says I am instead of what I'm afraid of. Responding out of what you're afraid of has never served you that well. That sort of wholeheartedness, if I die, I die. Honestly, friends, I'm telling you, it has brought me the most fulfillment and joy of my life. When you are responding wholeheartedly, to a crisis out of identity, out of who God says you are, rather than just the circumstances themselves, you find a boldness that you did not know you had before you stepped into that. As I close up, I want to just give you three quick things that I want you to internalize about who you are before you make the next big decision or before you react to something that feels a little bit overwhelming. These are three identity statements that are a real part of being a believer. All three of the things that I'm going to say, you can say with real confidence, and you need to say them before you make a big decision, because it will affect how you decide to do whatever you do. What Maybe it is from a role of authority to go before the king and ask for something big, or it's to respond to a family member who said something hurtful. You say these things before you say anything else. First of all, say, I am a friend of Jesus. Now, it is true. It is not what you know. It is who you know. And we are in good hands because Jesus went out of his way to indicate that those who follow him and serve him are more than followers and more than servants. In John 15, 15, he tells his disciples, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. As a servant, you have been given a front row to his activity. But as a friend, you've been given insight into why he does what he does. And he will speak to you like a friend. There are times you need to literally pray, Jesus, as your friend, I need you to tell me what's going on here. Don't just, don't let me be the last one at the table and figure out, Lord, as your friend, you said that as those that you call friends you speak to and you reveal what the Father reveals to you. So Lord, as your friend, reveal to me what you're doing here. Tell me what you're doing because I want to respond like a friend of Jesus in this situation. The second thing that I want you to say in that moment of decision, and this all sounds like basic Sunday school. You know why basic Sunday school was so great? Because it worked. Say, I am a child of God. John 1.12 says, but to all who receive him, who believed his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Some of us act like we're a guest of God. Like we just live like we're at the table, but you know, the dinner could be over at any moment. I'm a guest. I'm not a child. You know, we sat out on our patio last night with dear friends and talked till late into the night and our kids ran all over and it was crazy, but eventually the friends went home. Our children stayed, okay? Because as a child, there are privileges that you get that even dearest of friends don't get. And he says, you're a child of God. You're not a guest. You're not a, just a friend of the family. You're not even a friend of the family with refrigerator privileges. 
there has been a tweak in the DNA and you belong at the table when everybody else has left. So how do I respond as a friend of Jesus and realizing that I'm a child of God? The third thing that you say is this, I walk in a different spirit. Okay. The idea that you're a friend of Jesus and a child of God does not just affect you inwardly. It affects your response to people. Everyone at the table can be losing their cool and you don't lose yours. Why? Because you walk in a different spirit. Everyone at the table can be caustic and argumentative. You are not caustic and argumentative. Why? Because you walk in a different spirit. How can that be your identity? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians six seventeen. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Isn't that a crazy thought? He who is joined with the Lord, who is union with Christ, becomes in one spirit with him. That doesn't make you God, but that places the spirit of God within you and gives you the strength to respond in a way that you could not were you not a friend of Jesus, a child of God, and have a different spirit in you. Now, you can tell a lot about a community, and I'm talking about geographical community here. You can tell a lot about a community based on, this sounds crazy, but really based on what is being advertised on the radio. Because it is a broadcast medium to advertise to the greatest need. It is not targeted. Your uh, internet advertisements are very targeted. That's why, and I don't fully understand this, but that's why when you buy something for the next six weeks, you see advertisements for what you just bought. It would make sense if they could do that before you bought it, but it happens. It's super targeted. They, they're tracking you and they know how that works. Broadcast medium is different. Broadcast medium, they have to speak to the greatest need in the community. And recently on the radio, I have suddenly begun to hear repeated advertisements for internet and text-based counseling services. Now, I didn't even know this existed a couple of years ago. But now it is cost effective to advertise to the biggest audience possible that they can find. Why? Because so many people are under such great stress. They're in great trying times. People are losing their jobs. They're living in fear. There is the most trying time of, of our lifetimes. Our grandparents and our parents had theirs, but we've got ours. And we are going to walk them out based on who we are, not just out of reaction to what is happening to us, but with the knowledge that we are friends of Jesus, we are children of God, and we walk in a spirit that is opposite to the spirit of this age, and we expect and receive different results. When we do that, like Esther, we make decisions based out of our identity, and we stand in the strength of that identity rather than our own shaking boots in, in the circumstance that we're in. Hey, thanks for listening. If you are interested in what we feel the Lord is putting together in the way of a church, you can sign up for a weekly email that lets you know when and where that we connect. Go to zoefoundationkc.com. That's zoefoundationkc.com. We hope to hear from you. Have a great day.